0: This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to landmark episode number 50 of the Rebel Author Podcast. I cannot believe we have reached episode 50 i started i wasn't actually confident that i would get uh much past well i don't i don't know i didn't really have any expectations but i certainly um didn't anticipate Getting to episode 50 and it feeling so quick and so fun and I'm super happy. I mean, I have always loved listening to podcasts and obviously I wanted to do it really badly. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just didn't have the confidence that I could do it and so... Each and every episode that I keep delivering is always a bit of a surprise to me because, hey, I did another episode and I'm still going. So, yay, Rebel Author. Um, Yeah, so we are almost at the one-year mark. But today I am talking to Tiffany Yates Martin. And holy shit, guys, this uh, conversation was unbelievably good. Uh, We talk about editing and the intuitive nature of editing and we look at some of the details of craft and the mistakes that people make editing and I think you are going to learn a shitload from this podcast. I know I went away um, frankly exhausted needing a lie down because it was such a gritty, in-depth conversation and I just fucking loved it. So yeah, I hope you guys love it too. But first, to last week's question, which was, if you could do anything as a side hustle, what would it be? Jasmine Plate said, I absolutely love narrating and I'm already doing a wee bit of that short stories only so far. It's, different, it's a different form of storytelling and a lot of fun with less creative agony. I completely agree, I love doing the podcast, I love audio I cannot wait uh, to get in my audio booth I have now finished, um, as soon as I finish the course I will be going and um, doing, uh, starting in the audio booth although I am still waiting for a one bloody piece of metal from the manufacturer uh, for my sound shield uh, I don't particularly want to move the mic's position once I start recording and without that piece I can't hold the mic up because it managed to get lost in the moves so that is why I haven't started recording yet. Anyway, back to the question. Amy Sund says gardening landscaping is my side hustle, though it is sustaining me right now until the editing takes off. I'm not sure if I will drop the gardening when it does, though. I need my hands in the soil too. I think that's a really good point. A lot of people in the indie world, or I guess just the writing world, writing seems to be one of one of these very all consuming um, industries. And, you know, uh, you're a writer, and that's it. But no, that's not true. We don't have to just be writers, we can be lots of things, we can have lots of interests. You know, I love audio, I'm not just a writer, I'm a podcaster, too. And, um, you know, I will be a narrator very shortly as well. I used to do narration and and voice work when I was younger. Um, And yeah, I just, sometimes we get very rigidly stuck in, writing and writing being everything but actually I think we become more whole more we, we get more inspiration you know I think are we are I just think there is more everything <laughs> I am not using words very well this morning but yes don't be afraid to have more than just words it's okay to have more than just words uh, and and on that note Erin McKnight says I had I'd have to say baking is therapeutic for me so being able to be paid for it would be amazing Victoria LK Williams said I would love to explore photography and learn how to design book covers then those skills uh, would be provide is- additional income and expand my base of followers Canalty says I have an audio narration online course do audio narration consultation thanks to me and paid beta reading on the side I can't remember what I did to nudge Renee in the direction of audio consultation but I might be using that service very soon so yeah awesome Michael nasberg says I think I might like being a streamer on Twitch, play games, talk about stuff, get paid. I could even use it to passively promote my books. I don't know what Twitch is. This is probably showing my age. I'm guessing it's a social media of some variety or another. Um, But yeah, I know that my son would love to be a gamer too. So lots more comments. Thank you to everybody. We had comments from Jerry, Jackie, Matthew, Edwin, Kate, Uh, So yeah, thank you everybody for those uh, comments. I do read them. If I don't reply, you can be assured I have read every single comment every week. So to this week's question then, which is, what part of the writing, publishing and marketing journey do you like best? It's a real tough one for me because I really love the drafting process and I think it's the part where I suffer the least with self-doubt there's usually a patch uh, just before I guess sort of from 55 to 70% where I start to wobble but as soon as I get over that 70-75% mark and I'm on the downhill towards the final um Uh, then it tends to bugger off again. But yeah, I I would say drafting. But I also really, really love that moment when I finished the book. And um, I don't particularly enjoy the formatting or, you know, dealing with all the marketing and stuff. But I do really enjoy the sensation of having finished, like truly finished a book. So both, but both finishing, having finished all of the writing and editing and all of that stuff, but also that post launch, I do tend to get a bit of a low after a launch. But, but I also revel in that I've ticked something off, it's another thing in the world. So yeah, I would say those are my two favourite parts. The book recommendation of the week this week is one of my books. So it's Nine Things Career Authors Don't Do, Personal Finance uh, by me and Jay Thorne. And that will be coming out on the 18th of September. It's up for pre-order right now. So go grab yourself a copy, go grab yourself a pre-order and um, read the rest of the books in the series. It's a phenomenal series. I've had quite a few emails from people who have read the Rebel Mindset uh, book and um, emails from people saying that they it really motivated them. It reminded them why they were doing this, that they could do it. So yeah, if you are in a bit of a funk and you need um, a bit of a, a bit of a kick up the ass, then uh, yeah, go read it. Maybe it will be the pat on the shoulder that you need, or, or maybe it will be the kick up the behind uh, that you need, but hopefully it will motivate you. So in personal update this week, don't forget that to celebrate the uh, one year anniversary of the Rebel Author Podcast, I will be doing a live Poison and Prose session. And uh, in amongst there, there will be stacks of Q&A. So if you do have questions, it's a uh, good one to attend it will be on the 30th of September at 8pm UK time and uh, to join you have to be in my Facebook group because that's where it will air and I will be uh, I will have a co-host Daniel Wilcox from uh, Great Writers Share and also my other podcast Next Level Authors will be uh, joining me so yeah if you would like to join us for that please do. In other news, I finished my novella. I, I can't actually believe I finished another book. Um, I think it's because I've written three very short books back to back. But, oh my goodness, I am loving this, uh, you know, finishing book, finishing stuff. Very, in rapid uh, succession. This year, one of, one of my themes for this year was to uh, finish things. This was the year of finishing because I had a lot of projects that were um, just hanging, half done, three quarters done, uh, par- partially started so I really wanted to finish this year having finished a load of things and to my fucking surprise I actually have despite all of the shit that has happened this year I am finishing things so I'm delighted uh, by that and this uh, this book was supposed to be a prequel and in a way it is a prequel but I'm actually moving it to book 3.5 in my series the reason for that is i'm creating i guess uh, like a series easter egg so um the prequel that's now book 3.5 is written as a journal and the character writing the journal um, writes the journal in book three so um, I will go back and edit book three because it hasn't been launched yet to include lots of references to this character writing this book but there won't be any information in book three about what it contains Um, and that's why I will be bringing out uh, it as book 3.5 because It will also be set in the timeline of book three, but um, because it's a journal, the character is reflecting back on things that happened before the series started that sort of led them to the the point that they are at. So yeah, it's either a genius idea or it's really crap, Um, but I'm hoping that it really works. And when I give it to my first uh, reader, I'm hoping that they'll really enjoy it. I think for anybody who has read and loved the series, they will love it because it just ties everything in really beautifully. But yeah, we'll see. I've got some editing to do and I'm really, really pleased that I didn't go ahead and finish book three and publish that before I started Sirens because it means I can tie them in like this. And that's actually kind of a lesson to me about not necessarily publishing everything super fast because you can tie things in um, better in the series. Um, Although that is easier if you write faster than me, who does not write that fast. I am waffling today, guys. Uh, I have also made lots of progress on the course, the, the Anatomy of Prose course, and the very first um, comprehensive module I'm bringing out is about writing using the senses. Uh, and I can't believe how long it's taking me. Um, I, I always want to make sure it's the best it can possibly be which is why everything takes me fucking forever but um yeah i'm getting there it's almost almost all of the slide decks and the modules are done so um i will then be moving on to filming and hopefully i can get all of the filming done in a week which is probably wildly ambitious and won't actually happen but fingers crossed because i am it's we've only got a couple two or three weeks before it's supposed to be launched so i'm cutting it a little bit fine there Still no school place for my son, but we are hoping that any day now we will find out. And um, if he doesn't get a place in the school that we want, then we will have to look again and try again to apply to a different school. Um, But please, uh, you know, keep all of your fingers crossed. Ask karma. Pray to whoever you pray to for me because I am literally desperate to get my son into a school now, desperate for him, desperate for his mental health, desperate for our mental health. Um, Yeah, it's not fair on him. So I really am hoping that this next week is the week when we find out and get my son into a school. Thanks to everybody who filled out the survey for me. I mentioned last time that I have done an audience survey to find out, uh, I guess, what your struggles are, how you came to find me, and all of that good stuff, which I hope will help me to just refine a few things going forward. Uh, just another reminder about the Anatomy of Prose How to Breathe Life into Your Story, Characters, and Sentences webinar with Pro Writing Aid, which will be on the 8th of of October, and I will include a link in the show notes uh, to that, as well as um, my prewriting writing aid discount code, which gets, gets you 25% off, and uh, my affiliate link to their software. Okay, listener rebel of the week. This week is Beth Ball. Beth says, Not quite two years ago, I took my comprehensive exams for my PhD in literature. It was a terrible, stressful experience that resulted in huge spikes in my anxiety, but also ramped up my self-care routine. Did I read the 100 assigned texts and 50 books of theory? No, no I didn't. Each day I would ask myself what's something I want to do today, and then I would have to do it. Nice bargain, me. I played lots of Dungeons and Dragons for my fun thing, so much so that my husband and I started a blog and began publishing adventures. And I dove into as many indie author books as I could manage, trying to figure out how to get started with what I'd always wanted to do, write a novel. By March of last year, I'd started writing my first novel and wrote and completed it instead of my dissertation! My novel came out in May of this year along with a prequel novella and I'm hoping to have the second out in quarter four of this year. Meanwhile, I'm still on chapters one and two of my dissertation and I've never been happier in my adult life. In June, I turned down the school's offer of a teaching apprenticeship and I'm writing full-time plus editing, my dream come true. I love that so much. I love it for so many reasons. Um... I mean, I, I am curious, are you going to finish your PhD? <laughs> um, I'm curious because I almost did a PhD. I got uh, a scholarship to do a PhD in uh, Macquarie University in Sydney. Um, but it was right after my degree and my master's. And I just, I'd had enough of education. I, I loved the topics. It was uh, in cognitive uh, neuropsychology and basically a concept called distributed cognition, which I think I have talked about before. Um and I would have got to play with like functional MRI scanners and all kinds of awesome stuff. But I I just had enough and I didn't want to emigrate halfway across the world. And yeah, spiders also in Australia, which is such a cliche, but you know, um, I, I would like to say that the spiders weren't the only reason I didn't go. They probably were one of the reasons though. So. Um, but yeah, and also I'm so glad I didn't go because I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, even though I am curious, you know, my life would have turned out like. But anyway, um, yeah, I love that you're happy and that self-care led you to um, a dream come true. I think there is no po- no better lesson learned uh, than that. So what a fantastic rebellion! So yeah, just a quick reminder that um, I do need these rebel stories. I think I've got a small handful of stories left. Um, and so yes, if you do have a rebellion, whether it's a big, small or a medium one, then please do send it in. Um, I would love to keep these going each week. I know you guys like them. So yes, don't be afraid. I only bite on Tuesdays. Uh, email me at rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. No new patrons this week, but a huge thank you to all my current patrons. You not only help to keep the podcast running, but you give me warm, squishy feelings in my belly and occasionally chipping them off my coal like heart. So, yes, thank you guys. I, I really do appreciate you and um, yeah, I love you guys. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as some bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And that's Sasha with a C and not an S. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Tiffany Yates Martin. With more than 25 years in the publishing industry as a developmental editor, Tiffany Yates Martin of Fox Print Editorial helps authors tell their stories as truthfully, compellingly, and effectively as possible. She's worked with both major publishing houses and directly with authors on titles by New York Times, USA Today, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, as well as with newer authors. She's led workshops and seminars for conferences and writers' groups across the country and is a frequent uh, contributor for writers' sites and publications. She's the author of Intuitive Editing, a creative and practical guide to revising your writing. Welcome!
1: Thank you. I don't think my intros ever sounded as nice as in your plummy accent.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it when people tell me that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, no, well, yes. I mean, you you wrote it. You have the amazing bio chock full of all of those goodies. So, yeah, thanks for letting me read it. Um, and and also, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, would you, So, obviously, I, you know, I have read your bio, but would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about you? And I guess your writing journey, your editing journey... Um, and, you know, how you got to where you are today.
1: Sure. It's, kind of, it's funny. I kind of edged backward into it. I, um, I was an actor at first and I was living in New York and working as a waiter like every actor and didn't want to do that forever. And I had been an English major and I saw in the, pay, in the New York Times, there was an ad that said, get paid for reading books, send us $25 and we'll show you how. And without dating myself too overtly, this was long enough ago that $25 was a big deal and I was a starving artist. So it was a huge deal to me, but I thought, all right, I'm going to try it. I know it's a scam, but what the hell? So I sent them my $25 and to my shock, this pamphlet, which I still have, um, was full of really excellent suggestions. Like it had a lot of um, information about how to become a copy editor and a proofreader for major publishers and what you needed to know and what the resource books were and how to approach different publishers and find the person who would do the hiring and not get shunted into HR. Um, And funny, you know, this is before the internet, okay? This is so, and now I am dating myself. So I had to, you had to go to the library and look up this enormous book called The Literary Marketplace, which you could not check out because it was at the reference desk. So I had to sit there, for days on end, thumbing through this monster, and you would, f- and it was a listing of every publisher, every staff member. It was like an analog website, <laughs> basically. So I um, contacted a bunch of people, took a bunch of tests, and started doing it. Publishing is a small industry, mm. and when you start doing something and you're pretty good at it, they your your name gets around. So I did that for maybe 15 years, working for most of the big six at the time. And then I transitioned into into developmental editing about, oh, 12 or 13 years ago. And I've been doing that since, directly with authors and also working through publishing houses. And I love it. I think I'm the luckiest person on earth.
0: So... uh, (laughs) it has been a long day so um are you are you do you only write nonfiction? is this your first book have you written fiction as well um or is intuitive editing like your number one so funny
1: enough as you were reading my bio I realized that you and I talked about my coming on the show a while ago and it was before so for mmm six or so years, I have written fiction under a pen name that I have Ah. kept very much under wraps because, Uh um, well, the ostensible reason, which is true, is because editing is my my first love and my greatest passion. And I never wanted the authors I work with to feel that they came second to my Mm -hmm. own writing. But then recently I started realizing it was also partly fear and self-doubt about my fiction writing and feeling like I am as I said, I identify as an editor and I know I'm a good editor and I'm less confident about my writing. I realized, I I think I'm a a very good writer, but I just thought, Oh my gosh, what if the authors who I work with read my fiction and think, Oh, why should I listen to her? And I started to realize that felt very inauthentic and ungenuine and I wanted to urge them. So about a month ago, I, I, came out <laughs> as Phoebe Fox and nobody cared at all except me which was funny because it was such a big deal to me and I kept thinking about that Oscar Wilde quote that you wouldn't worry so much what people think about you if you realized how rarely they do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah it's been really it feels really good. Weirdly good, you know? Like Uh, all of a sudden I'm claiming my writing more and feeling more confident about it and feeling more cohesive in general. Um, My most recent book just released with Berkeley
0: Penguin last week, actually, um, a little bit of grace. So I have two out in the middle of a pandemic. Amazing. A huge congratulations. I really, um, I, I really felt a lot of what you were saying then because um, I have also done uh, a lot of developmental editing and obviously mm-hmm. I write non-fiction books about the craft of writing and I also publish fiction and I I almost halted and couldn't get to the end of my next fiction book because a, f- you know, a few readers of my non-fiction had, had mentioned things, you know, about... Uh, reading my fiction to see you know how how it crosses over and it just it paralyzed me and I've had a number of people say things like that and um yeah like I completely understand what you're saying and you know I I definitely considered oh, should I should I be putting my my fiction out under a different name just so that there's less pressure um, but I think it's part of the journey and I just have to deal with it because you know we all have those first books. Nobody's debut is the best book they are ever going to like. Right. It's always the shittiest book they've ever written, you know? All right. Like, yeah, I mean it is. Like let's be well, right. Every book you sorry, yeah. my dog's having a cow.
1: Every book you ever write is the shittiest book you've ever written at first, right? That's what editing is for. And that's exactly. that my little like joke to everybody if my plan, if anybody said anything, was to say, Well, see, this is why editing is powerful. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but yeah, I think like, do you feel that it is, do you feel comfortable integrating the two? Are you glad that you
0: um, don't have that divide? I'm still processing and working my way through it. So I think, so for me, my first fiction book the problem is I've grown so much as a writer that looking back Mm -hmm. at my first book um the story is fine but I can see holes in it and that's what being an editor does to you you know you you spend a long time you know trying to polish manuscripts and helping people but that ultimately leads you to finding holes and errors and therefore when you go back and read your own work don't ever do that by the way but when did you do because you can't remember what you wrote in the first book you see loads of problems and errors yeah and so I am tr- I'm trying to get over myself um and just accept that that first book that I published is is the is a moment in time Part of me Wants to pull it And edit it And put it out again And then I'm like Actually just keep moving forward It it was the mm. artist And the creative That I was at that point in time And therefore Just keep going And, and move on And I think once I have Some more books In different series I will probably won't care anymore But because it's the only Fiction series I have Because I haven't finished The other books It's a, it's an issue But anyway We're not here to talk about me So We're here to talk about you And your, um, your Non-fiction book Intuitive Editing So can you tell everyone a little bit about the book and why you decided to write it and what do you mean exactly by intuitive editing as a concept? So those
1: are, uh, I'm glad you lumped those together because they're all closely related actually. I had always, it's been a career dream to be able to write something that would help authors. I think what I'm really good at is helping authors see their work with perspective and approach it in a way that isn't um it's very organic. So all of this is sort of sort of works together. I'm not a big fan of rules of writing and I know <laughs> you're not either. <laughs> to me they this is a creative pursuit. And if you put a bunch of strictures on it and a bunch of rules and you try to adhere to some dogmatic school of thought, you're stifling the very thing that brings your creativity to life. Mm. But As much as I love craft books, and you can probably see behind me, there's a wall of them. Um, And I think there's something of value to be gleaned from most craft books that you read. But then put all that in your toolbox and pick out the tool that you need when you need it. Work, I always say I like to work. This is, I guess, what I mean by intuitive editing. Work from the inside out rather than the outside in trying to take, like, you know, the hero's journey or the six-stage plot structure or the W plot structure and impose that on your writing, trying to make your writing be something you think it should be. I work with authors to help them organically find the kernel of the story they wanted to tell, the heart of that story, and then develop it and deepen it and put it on the page as effectively and compellingly as possible, which means the exact same premise is going to look different from in every single author's hands, if you're working that way, because you don't have to like hit all the story notes. I'm making little air quotes as I say that. Um, Yes, readers have specific expectations for story and you want to be able to um, meet those expectations in a way that keeps them engaged and invested in your story. But there are so many different ways to do that. And to me, the fun part of editing is finding the way that is right for you and your story. And I love what you said a minute ago, the the artist that you are at that point in time, because mm-hmm. that'll change too. If you tried to rewrite your first book right now and go back and edit it, it would not be the same story I expect, mm-hmm. because you're different. Not only have you grown as a writer, but you've grown as a person, you've grown as a as a creative. Mm-hmm. So I I love the idea that every book is a snapshot of the artist that you are when you wrote it.
0: Yeah, and I can't claim to um, have, have said that as the originator. I think, I don't know if it was, I feel like it was maybe Elizabeth Gilbert, but I, I could mm. be wrong there. I know I've had um, a number of conversations about that. My, my solution, by the way, is to, um, I've got, uh, I'm approaching 10K in uh, another book it, that's completely standalone so I'm going to write and release that before I finish the series because I think it's the only way I can keep my sanity so I know it, it's like delaying another book a little bit but I, it, I think it's going to keep me sane so
1: yeah and if we're not doing this for the love of it and the joy of it I mean I'm all about marketing I'm all about your you know making your mark in, as a in your career but I also feel that there's a reason we all do this and there's Mm. a lot to be said for
0: following your heart and telling the story that's talking to you whenever it's talking to you oh god I cannot agree with that more they are so sentient like people think I'm mad when I say that stories (laughs) are sentient but they are like my husband thinks I'm schizophrenic Yeah! yeah
1: because you know because i'll come like you i'm sure you do this too every writer does you come out of your office and you go oh my god i was writing this scene and it was going to be about so-and-so but then all of a sudden the character started doing this other thing and he's like the characters are you you're
0: creating them (laughs)
1: But they're not But they're not That's the the magic of it
0: That's what I love Yeah Like And and I always tell this story But I I walked past a lamppost This is why I have a lamppost In my office And this whole story Just like Dropped into my head Fully formed Like that's not how can that be me how can i just you know it's it's not it wasn't me it was the muses or whatever anyway yeah there's a theory and
1: i I can't remember if it's greek or roman or who's like it, uh, it and it stems from sort of the muses but there's a theory that there's this thin membrane that separates us from this other plane of existence where all the creative stuff is and that the artists are the ones that are more attuned to the crossing over of the membrane
0: I really like that idea. I
1: love that.
0: I love that. And it kind of feels true Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, because it
1: is a little bit outside of what you think you are uh, intentionally creating.
0: Yeah. So okay. So I, I, this is probably wildly inappropriate, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm gonna, <laughs> it's the Rebel Podcast, yeah, girl. Be yeah, inappropriate. And also, and also, I think you'll appreciate it. Um, so, like, we so you know how you'll have like this spark of genius, and that twist will come to you, or you'll all of a sudden come up with a new subplot or a character will appear, and these moments are like almost you know you have to grip something because you're gonna you're gonna collapse because it's such a a potent powerful spontaneous like out of thin air i call them literary orgasms because that's (laughs) delightful that's delightful
1: who doesn't (laughs) love an orgasm i know
0: and that's what it feels like. It, we call them lit os with my uh with my oh, with my excellent. friends, my critique partner and, and it is it's literally like a, like a, a well, I can't even think of think of the word but you know like a, a knee buckling moment. <laughs> anyway, this podcast has definitely gone sideways. <laughs> <laughs> or is it right on brand?
1: Well, it's probably. Well, on here's what I here's what I the other sort of flip side of that coin is that often when I'm working with an author on their story, you know they there's um threads and themes and cohesive elements that tie together into these sort of larger things that are perfect for the story. And I'm, I always think I'm kind of like a detective. I'm not um, telling an author what to put in their story. I'm, I'm digging out what's already in there. And I and the authors that I tell, you know, that I work with are equally astonished at how often authors automatically put all this in the manuscript, you may not realize it, you know, but it's Mm -hmm. subconsciously, I can't tell you how often subconsciously authors will put in the most brilliant, like this is the perfect, this character is the perfect foil for the protagonist or this situation you have created could not be more suited because it ties back into her original wound and it's stuff that they had no idea they did. They didn't try to do it on purpose. And if you want to call it writer's instinct, you you could but I also think it's something about this kind of like internalizing of something outside of strictly our own minds.
0: Yeah. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. And that's why I go back and reread my books because um, particularly in this series, uh, because I have picked out things that I put in the first book that are now relevant in the third book. And I didn't know that was going to be the case, you know, like it's amazing. I, I love that we do that. And I can't explain it. I don't know how we do it, but, um, yeah, I think it's, I just, stories are sentient, they're magical, I, it's, it's just, they're fucking awesome, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, we are supposed to be talking about editing. Um, so what mistakes do you see writers making when they try and edit their own manuscripts? Um, The hardest
1: part is to get objectivity about your own story, because you know the world so well, and you're filling in all the blanks. So one of the reasons I wanted to write this book here, I'll tie it back to the first question, is because I think that um, the skill of editing your own work is beyond just knowing how to fix things that might need a little bit more building up or attention, but how to find those things. And that's literally how I structured the book. It's broken every chapter, every subject is broken into two sections, how to find it and how to fix it. And they are two slightly different skills because the objective mind is kind of reader mind. You almost have to put yourself in the reader's shoes and say, okay, this was my intention here. And and here's what I think this scene is about. Have I put that on the page? That's the value of having an objective person come in and edit for you. But my argument is that like any skill, you can learn to do a lot of that for yourself as a writer. Um, In fact, on my website, I put up, I created this course that I um, right after the pandemic hit, I was offering it to a bunch of writers organizations because we were all kind of going crazy and everybody was stuck at home. And I thought, well, I'm just going to do this because We're all doing nothing but vegging on the sofa and watching television and reading, but that's incredibly productive time. So I created a presentation about using, the best way to learn to get objectivity on your own work is by learning how to get it on someone else's work because you're not connected to it. And so you can do that every single day in the books you're reading, in the movies you're watching, in the television shows that you're watching. We're always told, told to like read like a writer, but what does that mean? So I break down really clearly how to analyze what, how to analyze whether another storyteller has conveyed something clearly on the page or on the screen. And if so, how, and that becomes a part of you and you almost automatically start being able to slip into that with your own editing. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one is being objective. Um, And then as far as just like the storytelling itself, probably the biggest things I see over and over are, Characters that could use more facets or depth. Um, uh, Here's a big one. Action, but no plot, and plot, but no story. So a lot of times I'll see like really great things happening. You've got all these exciting scenes, but they're not cohesively strung together in a path leading our character toward their destination, which is plot, nor are they intrinsic to the character's emotional journey in the story. they point A to point B, which makes it story. Um, or not having a central story question at all, which is, you know, the reason that we're reading. Will Katniss survive the Hunger Games or be able to, you know, help her family? Uh, will Sherlock solve the crime? Whatever genre it is, whatever that one big question is that we're reading, we need to know what that is because that's the reason we're turning pages. And then the usual stuff. Low stakes is a big one that I see. Sometimes I think authors are reluctant to really raise the stakes because they're scared of tipping into melodrama. But I say risk it because it's much easier to pull back, and and because so often our instinct, I think, is to undershoot it because we're either doing what we want in life, which is no drama, (laughs) or, um, or or we're just worried that it's going too far. And so I think authors. Generally, they will write stakes that are too low rather than going too high with it and a lack of momentum um, Tension and suspense.
0: That's probably the big stuff mm. Okay, so before we before I move on to the next question, do you have a quick tip or um, any advice on the first one? So getting greater depth or um, you know facets to, to characters. What would you say to writers? Oh my gosh? What a great question.
1: Yeah, that's a big one for me. So when I was an actor, we would be in acting school, and, and I'm, I think they say the same thing to authors, and they would say things to us like, you need to know what your character's favorite ice cream flavor was when she was seven, and who her favorite teacher was in high school. And I'm like, okay, but what do I do with that? Like, why is that important? And so I've put a bunch of questions, and that's my whole like MO with the book and how I edit. I don't instruct, I just ask questions so the, the author can ask the questions of themselves as far as what their vision was and find the answers. So I would say things like, um, okay, let's say those two things I just said, the ice cream and the and the professor, the teacher, those are only important if they're directly germane to something about the story that we are reading. So if let's say, Um, you know, her long lost, and I'm spitballing here, so this may be the stupidest story ever. Let's say her long lost father shows up and she's furious at him and she won't talk to him. And he shows up at her office with a pint of her favorite ice cream when she was a little girl. Now that has emotional resonance and it makes sense. Or, you know, we need to know who her favorite teacher was because Um, she was bullied in school, and this woman was the only person who ever made her feel like she was worthy of something. And that's the memory she keeps clinging to when she's suffering from low self-esteem or whatever it happens to be. So find, I just wrote an article about this actually, find the traits that you need your character to have for the purposes of your story and the characteristics, and then dig backward. So if you have a character that you want to be selfish, first of all, you could ask yourself, how do we know that character is selfish rather than telling the reader? How does that evidence in her life as a result of those behaviors, whatever they are, let's say she never puts herself on the line for her friends, She's never there for her friends. What has that resulted in, in her life? Maybe she doesn't have a lot of close friends. What has that resulted in, in her life? Maybe she feels isolated. What is I, what is being isolated? Make somebody feel, maybe it makes you feel, um, angry, mean, grumpy all the time. Maybe it makes you introverted. May- who knows? But dig backward like, like a paleontologist of the human psyche. <laughs> and then you can keep going to find out. So let's say take the same trait, keep digging backward. What would make a person selfish? Was she born that way? Most of us, I think, are not. You know, we're both We're born basically relatively decent, I think. And then we learn different adaptive behaviors? What might make someone selfish? Was she raised in a family of eight other kids and she literally had to fight for like every morsel of food? Um, Was she raised by narcissistic parents? Was, I mean, it could be a thousand things, but ask yourself all the questions to dig out the results and the the causal factors of the end result that you wanna work with in your story. You'd be amazed like that just, oh my God, that, that one technique alone will turn your characters into incredibly fully fleshed real people because we can relate to that stuff.
0: Yeah. I, I almost, I'm like over here, my, my brain's exploding. I'm, I'm just, I love every single thing you just said, and you really, (laughs) really ought to write a book about characters and emotion because, um, yeah. Oh my God. Like, oh, I'm just, okay. Do you want to know the
1: secret weapon?
0: Yeah. I've been telling everybody
1: this lately. Um, so on my, and I haven't put it on my resources page yet, but I have a very robust resource page on my website with lots of craft books and podcasts and all that. But lately I'm thinking I'm going to put psychology books on there. That's the magic sauce people. Yeah. It's. I mean, you can observe people all day long and that's brilliant for your fiction because you can describe them and you can, re- you can recreate what you're seeing. But if you really want to understand what motivates people and why we do what we do, read psychology, read anything that strikes your fancy. You will pick something up that
0: teaches you why humans behave the way we behave. It's so funny. I nearly said to you, like, writers actually have to be psychologists. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, like, honestly, when you were talking, I was like, I always think that writers ought to be psychologists. My background is psychology, which is probably why <laughs> I was like, oh, I love everything she's
1: saying. Like, so, so it's, it's so- cognitive behavioral therapy, basically, <laughs> for your characters. You just <laughs> yeah. dig backward and find yeah. out why they're doing these things.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so let's talk about editing then. You have a writer who has just finished their first draft. How do they approach editing? Like how, you know, what sort of uh, method or system or process uh, should they approach in order to edit their manuscripts intuitively? So
1: I think... Every author will find what works best for them, but I do always recommend a certain approach because in my experience, it is the most productive and the most effective for authors, but, you know, take everything anyone ever tells you with a grain of salt. I literally, anytime the word rules is used in my book, it is literally in quotes because I'm not a fan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You'll you'll find what works for you. But what I recommend that you at least try um, is a bit counterintuitive I've adapted it from some, I have editing idols because I'm a word nerd and one of them is Saul Stein and he has a book called Stein on writing and I sort of adapted his triage technique, but I put my own little spin on it. Um, The idea is that, you know, with triage, you're outside a field hospital and all these wounded people come in, you better take the most wounded people first or they're going to die. You don't take a broken arm before someone who's, you know, hemorrhaging blood so start with the bleeders in your book too which means um the first thing i always suggest doing is just a cold read like a reader would read without taking notes without um trying to solve any problems and for god's sake don't go in and start editing this is i have found this to be a shockingly difficult thing to prescribe to authors i was
0: literally about to shockingly say, difficult it is so Fucking hard to do that like I think it's I, hilarious yeah it is impossible I don't know why like so when I when I I now because I am so incapable of doing that I have to <laughs> I'm gonna show you I have to um take my notes as I go. So like every edit is, is a post-it.
1: Oh my Lord. Yeah. And, oh, I wish I... everyone could see what you just showed me. That makes my <laughs> head spin.
0: Yeah. So basically for uh, listeners, I, um, I, I have a couple of pages with about 5,000 post-its on them and every uh, edit, be it a big edit or a small edit is written down, but I don't, I don't edit anything until I've like gone through and, and got all of the things that need fixing. And then I fix them. Well,
1: so my argument is this, Um, and this is how I edit. When I get a new story from an author, the first thing I do is put it on my Kindle and I read it like a novel. And I might be sort of in the back of my mind thinking, oh, the character is not really coming all that alive for me. That's something we might look at. But that's as deep as I'm going to get with it. I'm just reading it because I have to A, orient myself to the story. Mm. um, And I have to understand where the story is going before I have any hope of helping the author excavate out the vision that, you know, making sure that the vision that they had in their head is effectively coming across on the page. But I think it's valuable for authors because you think you know the whole story. And I say this as an author too. I mean, I do this exact same thing. You think you know it, you've spent however long just writing it. I promise you, you don't, you do not know how it looks on that page as a whole, unless you sit down and do it. And further, I strongly recommend that if at all possible, you read it in one sitting, Or as few sittings as possible. Your eyebrows just shot to your forehead. I love that. Because (laughs) you have to get this big picture of how the whole thing is holding together. And even if you think you have that, you don't. And then that lets you, first of all, it's the first step in getting objectivity. Especially if you put it on a Kindle or, or read it out loud or something like that. It's a totally different format from the way you wrote it in. So already it's kicking into a different part of your brain. You're not reverting to automatic writer brain.
0: Are you a fast reader?
1: Very. Uh
0: yeah. See, like... Is that a li- silly
1: thing to recommend?
0: No. Well, I'm just not a fast reader. It would okay. probably take me 10 hours to read one of my books from start to finish. Well, so but I could would...
1: you do that in like three sittings or four sittings?
0: Yeah. yeah. Close
1: together, if possible. The, the idea is to get a sense of the whole. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the thing that I think, you know, authors have their heads down and they're so busy climbing up the mountain, they forget to sort of step back and look at the whole journey where they need to go and yeah, this and, is the way to do that.
0: Yeah. And I completely agree because one of the things I really struggle with, and, and this m- might be because I write fantasy predominantly and therefore I'm as well as holding story plot, you know, well characters, I'm also holding world building and laws and mm. all of this magic stuff. So I find it very difficult to hold a whole novel in my head. And I get incredibly frustrated when I can't hold a whole novel and I get to a chapter and I'm like, what the fuck? Who wrote this? Like, <laughs> I don't remember writing this song, like, you know? Um. So yeah, I think it's a fantastic uh, suggestion.
1: It's hard to do. Um, if you want to, you know, your little post-it notes, I, I always say, if you need to jot down a, a couple of things, just little things you want to remember, you know, motivation, not clear around page 92, but that brief. And then don't worry about it. Don't, please, please, please don't try to fix it at that stage. So then, now you start to percolate. After that, you just let it sit for a day or two. And this is exactly how I do when I edit because um, just like when you're writing, you know, you're writing when you're not writing, when you're walking the dog or taking a shower, all the stuff's going on in your head. It's the exact same thing when you're editing. After you've gotten that big picture of your story, all of it's going to percolate. And as it's doing that, all the little puzzle pieces are going to start to fall into their right place. And you, it makes the process so much easier. Then you can go in and start doing
0: the editing. I, I have to ask you another question. I'm sorry, Okay, I, but we're not a, done because no, I'm going to tell fine. you to do that in a
1: weird way, but go no,
0: ahead. It's okay, it's fine. It's just because you're, you're saying so many interesting things. I have 5,000 other questions. And um, so do you feel like that around your own story? So f- like when, I, when I, um, I brew several books at once, mm-hmm. so I, I have a book that I'm, usually I have a book that I'm writing. So drafting a book that is sat waiting to be edited and then probably two, two fiction books and a nonfiction book that I'm brewing and percolating. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know. But, and, but I can't, so this is the thing. What Another one of the reasons I'm not going to write the fourth book in the series, the last book in the, the series is because I, it doesn't, I get to a point where I feel ready like it's like my brain becomes swollen and I have to then vomit it out And like, like it's the only way I can describe it like I don't feel ready to write that other book because I don't it's not all there it has to simmer and boil and you know it's not boiling yet whereas the book that I want to write it is I mean I am literally trying to hold back the puke because like, That's I lovely. literally want to like you know, vomit out this story because it's bulging like do you feel well I'm throwing things do you feel like that um, yeah I do the exact
1: same thing actually like I'm, I'm I'm drafting one right now. And then I have another one percolating in the back of my head. Um, and that's separate from the books that I'm editing. And I'm not editing one of my own right now. But when I was doing intuitive editing, I had that going in the foreground and was percolating these other two in the back of my head. I totally get that. I think there's so much value in the subconscious.
0: Mm. Mm. Okay, and I do
1: think that your brain puts, puts things together without your, you know, we sound like... We sound mentally ill, Sasha, because I, I mean, I get it. I get what we're saying is a little odd, but I think there's a lot going on beyond our direct volition.
0: Yeah. yeah and we need
1: to just let it. That's part of the creative trance, I guess. Yeah. Is just leaning into that.
0: Yeah. So if okay. you give
1: yourself time to percolate your first read, first of all, you'll never, ever get the same pleasure out of your own book as you will right after you finish it. You give, your, give it a little time to sit and then you get to read it like someone else's book. That is an unmatched pleasure. And you'll never have it again because you'll never ever experience it the same way again. So do it. And then after you percolated all that for a while, things are going to start to fall into place. I promise you're going to start realizing, oh wait, as I'm thinking about this, I realize I was, you know, the momentum slowed a lot in the middle. And I didn't really understand why my characters were doing what they were doing. And it will fall into several main categories generally. And then when you go in, this is where the triage comes into play, rather than starting at the beginning and editing all the way through, which usually winds up in a really magnificently polished first few pages that get progressively less polished because every time you do that, you're losing freshness for the story and you're losing your perspective. So once those big categories start to fall into place, My suggestion is to just go plug those holes in the dam wherever they may fall that again, that is a shockingly hard thing for many authors to kind of conceptualize because they want to go in order. But if you take the big bleeders first, the rest of it is going to fall into place so much more easily.
0: So I actually, I'm so glad I I finally do one thing right. (laughs) Well, there's no right. It works for you. But that's why I do these post-its. So these post-its are like bleeders. They are issues that need fixing. And I will take one post-it and fix that post-it. And if it needs fixing in multiple places, it's going to get fixed in multiple places. And it's not until I've done all of these that I then go back and edit from start to finish.
1: I love that you're one of the few authors I've ever talked to who already does that. And so, did you just like organically do that, or did you?
0: No, it's a, adapt it's gonna, to do it. Yeah, yeah. I would say I've I've learned to do that as. So my process has changed quite a lot, and um, it's only as I've tried to become more efficient at writing books, um, so that I can write uh, n- not necessarily faster, but just at the pace at which my creative need has. I don't know how else to describe that. And so um, rather, so, and the way that I do that is by writing a first draft incredibly quickly without stopping. And when I see a problem as I'm going, which I've only started to be able to do since I've done all of the developmental editing, instead of fixing it there and then I'll just post it, write it down that needs fixing and off I fucking go, keep going like fix it. later. You're a damn
1: genius.
0: (laughs) That's exactly the, Oh, I love that because there's, you know, three different
1: hats, three different brains. I always say when you're working, it's the writer brain, the editor brain and the reader brain. Mm. And each one has its purpose and its place. And the more you mix them, the less effective each one of them is. So when you're in writer brain, I always say stay the hell in writer brain. Don't come out. Mm-hmm. Don't like authors who say they edit as they go. I always think you're doing your creativity a disservice
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it's like you've got the schoolmarm standing over your shoulder with a ruler ready to wrap your knuckles for doing it wrong. And that's that's never going to help your creativity. Creativity, I always say, it never responds to the stick, only to the carrot. Mm-hmm. And I love that you say vomit it up because I say that all the time, which I don't know where you got it. If it's just your own thing but I borrowed it from Brenda Ulin's beautiful book about creativity. Um, if you want to write
0: oh. where she, she
1: says just vomit it up on the page, this thing. Okay. I see you writing it down and I have to, I have to proselytize this book. This woman would be a hundred years old if she were alive. She wrote this book, I think in 1932, When she was in her 30s, I think, she had been an editor and a reporter. I mean, this was way back when women were not doing this stuff. And she wrote this book that has become a classic. It is timeless and I love it. And it is the purest uh, kind of like hymn to the creative spirit and impulse that I have ever read. I just love it.
0: Yeah. I wrote down Stein on writing as well. I feel like I have that book. I was looking to see if I could. Let's look it.
1: in the color-coded white section. I know. <laughs>
0: well, uh, yeah, it's the, uh, it's For it's those of cool. you at
1: home, before we started, I was admiring Sasha's lovely <laughs> color-coded bookshelf.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I do have that one, but I can't see it. So anyway, I will be buying those books. later. That one
1: is um, one of the one of the most used tools in my toolbox. I think it's such an eloquent and practical um, Is it
0: white? Is the cover white? It is, it is. Ah, see, I think see I have it's it. One? I'm telling you, I think I have it. I told you I only know books by their cover. <laughs> That's so funny. You are visual. I know, right? Oh, it's, it's so weird. I, oh. Anyway, right. Um,
1: okay. So that way you're in editor brain when you need to be in editor brain. And then after you've done the bleeders, makes it you use the word efficient that you needed to edit this way because it makes you faster and more efficient and it really does Mm -hmm. if you start at the beginning and you're trying to fix the big stuff the little stuff it's like you're building a house let's say Mm -hmm. and you notice there's some issues with the foundation but you're going to go room by room you're not going to fix the house right that way you've got to first fix the foundation Mm -hmm. and then you can start doing all the other work in the other rooms you would never start like building out the guest bedroom while you still have a major foundation issue. So it does make it easier, I think, to do it. It's just a little bit counterintuitive. And then once you do that, you plug the big stuff, then you get the pleasure of going back and reading it again and seeing how it holds together now. I think when a lot of authors think about editing, what they stumble on is that their connotation of editing is polishing the prose, which is a part of editing. And it's, it's essential and it makes, it's what brings your story to life and makes it you and gives it voice, but it's the last step. Mm. It's, it's the staging in the HGTV show. you know what I mean? It's like the, you put out the bowl of apples and you put the curtains and the throw pillows and everything's perfect, but you don't do that until you've got the drywall up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so lots of writers as we've, uh, and I, I, I think we've probably covered a bit of this already, but so I don't know whether or not you want to add anything on, but lots of writers go blind to their work and struggle mm. to know what to fix. What advice would you give writers to help them find and identify and then fix the errors in their work? Probably two
1: things that we have touched on. One is the um, practice on other people's stories, and mm. maybe that's your crit group. Uh, if you're lucky enough to have one. But honestly, it can truly be um, movies, TV shows, anything you're reading, tear it apart. So read it once or watch it once just to take it in like a cold read. (laughs) But then then go back and read or watch it again. And like, for example, I just finished The Vanishing Half by Brit Bennett, and it's so good. And I just let myself enjoy it. You know, when a book totally sucks me in like that, I love it. And I just want to lose myself in it. So I did. But now I get to go back in and just tear that little sucker apart and see how she did what she did. Because it's the structure is brilliant. The characterization is brilliant and it's unique. And I want to I I can say off the top of my head how I think she did it, but I need to go back in and actually see how she did it. So that's one thing. And then the other is with the questions. Um, if you if you reading a scene and you think okay in this scene she's showing that she no longer and again i'm spitballing she no longer loves her husband and she's getting ready to tell him she's leaving him and she's nervous how does the reader know that ask yourself the questions what tells the reader that on the page that's how you start to get yourself some of that objectivity by holding yourself accountable almost rather than saying you know sometimes when i used to do a critique group years ago. Sometimes authors, when you give them your feedback will defend why Mm -hmm. you're wrong. (laughs) I don't see that so much as a professional editor, but especially with newer authors, it's, you know, nobody likes feedback and they'll tell you why you didn't understand their intentions and what their intentions were and why you're not seeing what they meant. But my answer was always, unless it's on the page, you're not there to explain it to the reader. So you better find a way to put it on the page and make sure that you've done that. Tell me what this book is you've just fetched up.
0: No, <laughs> well, I was I was just, I was sort of cackling to myself because we are so similar. So I, when I read, I read every single <laughs> word. I, I will explain to listeners what I'm showing, but basically I go through and um, every time I see like any, um, any, anything, so it could be characterization, it could be amazing dialogue, it could be crappy dialogue, or it could be, so I will underline anything that stands out. me. It could be description. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be, um, a juxtaposition. It could be a metaphor, whatever. And then I get to the end of a book and I go back and I often hand type every single sentence that i've underlined and wow. then i categorize them and i'm like okay all of these are on description all of these are dialogue all of these are metaphors um and nine times out of ten i will have underlined something consistently so a writer will have one thing that they do exceptionally there will always be you know multiple things that i've underlined but for example um Melissa Albert, who wrote The Hazelwood, um, her characterization and character descriptions are so luxurious, it's almost too much, but she stays just on that line of, like, really deliciously descriptive, um, quirky characterization, and so most of the things that I underline in her books are those, but what I do is I then go back and I say, well, exactly what you said, how have they done this? What techniques have they used? What what um, literary tools have they used to create those effects? Um, and yeah, and I have literally done that for years and years and years. So every single book I I read is like smothered in these sticky. I cans. love that. Like yeah, I but- mean if you
1: think about it, every other artist does that. You know how do painters learn? They go and they copy the masters. Um, athletes will study video from great plays, you know, everybody, we would understand that. Actors will watch other performances. We understand for every other art that that is a part of learning it. And yet it's, I don't know, it just doesn't. I think because reading is such a, an everyday, normal thing to do, especially for those of us who love words, it's something we've done forever. And we just assume if we've read it, we get it. Right. But you don't. You, no. don't, you have to, you're reading it with your right brain, mostly, exactly. you need yeah. to analyze it with your left brain.
0: and frankly I blame Stephen King for that myth uh, because well because he's he's the one who sort of famed the um you know if you want to be a writer you you have to do two things a lot you have to read a lot and write a lot but what that fails to 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 Mm. add is that it's reading isn't good enough you have to read and analyze and read like a writer and read with depth and consciousness and understanding and you know that I think yeah Anyway, this is so
1: foundational. I think that that course I told you about, I put it up for free and I just leave it up for free because that, if you master nothing else, even when you're doing nothing, you can be, you can be perfecting and learning and understanding, deepening your understanding of craft just by taking in other people, just by watching television, sitting on the sofa, reading a book, if you're doing it right.
0: I am that much of a loser that I have a, a, a Cineworld, like, cinema card. And I am the loser that will go and see a film once. And then on the second time I go and see it, I take a notebook. And people think I'm no, fucking mad. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> I literally sit in there taking notes in a, in a film. Like, at people, I definitely get looks from people like, the hell
1: is she doing? It (laughs) it feels like a passive thing to do. This is actually why the course came about because, you know, right after the pandemic hit and everybody was really thrown for a loop, what I kept hearing from authors was I can't write. I am just too scattered. I'm not doing anything for my writing. And I was like, well, actually you can, you are, even if you're just vegging out, there's so much you can be doing for your writing. If you're a writer, you're writing all the time. I joke that you can do it with commercials which you can, you can do it with song lyrics. You can do it with advertising copy because mm-hmm. what is all of that? It's story. Everything is a story and you can analyze how you're analyzing the effect on you, right? You're analyzing, why am I emotional about this? Why am I engaged in this? What speaks to me about this? How do they do that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree uh, on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> love the differentiation you made between tension and suspense i got it right this time um and i thought you had uh, an awesome definition for each so can you mm. tell lef- 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 oh, can you Tell listeners <laughs> can you tell listeners what the difference is and how they can um you know edit more of each into their novels
1: i always think of suspense as a function of the story as a whole and tension as a function more of scene what i mean by that is that um Suspense creates a question. It's a feeling of uncertainty. It's the whole, you know, the classic, what happens next? (laughs) And then tension is a conflict or an obstacle or friction, something standing in the character's way. They're often used interchangeably. And I think they're handmaidens. They work in service of each other. Tension will help create suspense and vice versa. how can you create more in your writing? Look to, in, so for suspense, first of all, as we talked about the story question, know what your central story question is. That is your main suspense. So I used Hunger Games as an example. Will Katniss be able to save her family and keep them together? That's why we're reading. That's the whole purpose of that entire story. And all the things that happen to her, even the Hunger Games, especially the Hunger Games, are simply either obstacles or um, things that help her along that journey. Um, so know what that is. And then ask yourself where the uncertainties lie. And there should be uncertainty in every single scene. I would venture to say on every single page, we need to be wondering something. So you've got your overarching kind of meta suspense arc of, you know, what's going to happen? Will, will Smith save the world? <laughs> will um, Will, I don't know. Is
0: Neo the one?
1: Is Neo the one? Will Pretty Woman and Richard Gere end up together? <laughs> Whatever the question, the central, the main story question is. Then you've also got little suspense arcs. You know, if we're looking at Pretty Woman, will they let her shop? <laughs> will, she, will, she, will he hire her to stay more than one night? Um, will she let him kiss her? There's all these little suspense things that we need to know the answer to. That's the key. We, we are curious creatures, human beings, and we must we must solve problems. We must know answers. We will always look for them. So, give your reader problems to solve and uncertainties. So, that's how you make sure you have suspense laced all the way through. And then, with tension, things should never be easy. Um, and that doesn't always mean blow something up, or even it doesn't always mean, you know, a fight or slapping someone in the face. Tension can be as minor as. Uh, a man comes home from work and his wife smiles and says, hey, honey, how was your day? And he scowls and ignores her. That's a moment of tension. And it's also an uncertainty. Why is he doing that? Now we're starting to ask questions. What's going on? Does he always come home like this? Is, she, is that a fake smile? Is she glad to see them? Did she know he was going to react that way? Like, as soon as you've got your reader doing that, we are a part of the story and we are deeply invested
0: in it. Mm, mm, I love it. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Oh God, I need to like, I'm going to have to go back and have this one transcribed because there's just so many amazing <laughs> things. Like I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stay completely present, but I'm also processing and like, oh, all of the things and in my brain, I'm geeking out and you're blowing my I mind. I just this stuff there. is
1: so fascinating and Isn't fun it? And, and fun. And that's the key. Like one of the, one of the things I say in the introduction to the book is I I know a lot of authors fear and dread editing and they think of it as, you know, oh, you've got to go slash up your writing. I do not think of it that way. I think it's the joyful, creative act of, you know, you've roughed out your marble and you've got kind of a human form, but this is where you get to make it the David and you really get to be creative and you really get to get to know your characters and your world and have fun with all these questions. Like you and I are, I wish people could see our expressions. You and I are both like edge of our seat, <laughs> like with these big light up expressions on, because this stuff is a ball. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. just don't think of it as, you know, Oh my God, what do I have to cut out of here to make it work? It's just, this is where it's intuitive. It's organic. It grows up from inside of you.
0: Yeah. And it's funny you say that. That. um, that talking about it being work and that almost um, pain that people talk about is part, something that I have tried very hard uh, recently to remove. So I, you know, I read this book by uh, ML uh, Ron and uh, it talked about how if you want to have a career as an author, then you cannot um, be in pain at any point whilst you are writing because any anything that hurts you're not going to want to do for a long period of time. You're mm. not going to want to do it over and over again, and therefore um, work out what bits of the writing process you don't enjoy and either eliminate it or change it. And so for me, that was why I started doing. Um, the the post-its because editing as I was going was slowing me down it was I was hating it I was it was taking forever and so um you know writing down but also equally I didn't like getting to the end of a manuscript and having a massive fuck off clusterfuck that needed fixing so (laughs) like at least if I wrote down the problems as I went then I, I had a plan that gave that gives me a plan I know exactly what needs to go you know I need to go and fix and then I fix it and then I can go and you know fanny with the, with the prose and the sentences, which is the fun stuff to me anyway. So like, yeah, I, I genuinely think, and part of this is, again, I suppose it is about the intuitive side and understanding what works for you and and what doesn't. So yeah. Yeah. And every
1: author will be different. You know, you may, you will, I love that you found your own thing that worked for you because that's what we all should do. We all work differently. Maybe you're a heavy plotter and that's what gives you that. Or maybe the idea of plotting something out that rigidly makes you want to die. Absolutely. Not that I would understand that viscerally in any way, (laughs) Uh, but whatever it is that works, maybe it's a combination of the two, you know, maybe whatever it is that gives you that joy and freedom that creativity really is and should be. And is the reason that we wanted to do it in the first place. Watch little, I mean, that's the most human impulse there is. Watch little kids. The first thing they do when they can begin to communicate is play make-believe They make castles out of blocks. They play king of the hill where they are, you know, ruling a neighboring empire. Kids are full of imagination for the joy of imagination. And I do think that's why we're all drawn to this. And then we get wrapped around the axle of the rules and doing it right. And that's not to say that when you vomit it up on the page, it's going to be publishable because uh, probably it's not. But so there is hard work involved, but it should be joyful, fulfilling work. And it can be, I really truly believe it can be.
0: Yeah, I do too. I do too, but I only, only of late have I realized that. And I think the, you know, this whole concept of, you know, you have to be in pain to, you know, create a masterpiece, oh. is a load of bullshit. No, time. like
1: picture a violinist, you know, like they have to practice how many hours to get good. Now imagine them bent over, absolutely hating everything
0: they're playing. What is that music going to sound like? Exactly. You have exactly. to find the joy in that thing. Exactly. Okay, talk to me about momentum, pace, and stakes. How can a writer ensure they're keeping a pace that engages and pulls a reader along? So for me, momentum and pace are kind of like suspense and tension in that
1: I think people lump them together a lot, but they're slightly different. But they work together, like suspense and tension. Um, Momentum, here's the way I always think of it. Uh, Both the Mississippi River and Niagara Falls have momentum but they're moving at a very different pace. So momentum is the constant movement toward your story's climax and resolution. And every single thing in your story should always be moving forward toward that momentum, should be constant. But pace is, uh, if momentum is like you're driving across country and you're, you're constantly going toward California, then pace is the speed you're driving. And you can vary that, you know, if you went 90 miles an hour the whole time, it would be a pretty dull trip, but it also would be if you went 20 miles an hour the whole time. So you want to vary your pace. So the momentum is also tied to stakes. Um, Let me see if I can simplify this in a pithy little way that doesn't get us too deep in the weeds. So the stakes, readers don't care what's happening until we care who it's happening to. So we have to care about your character. character has to profoundly care about whatever they have to gain or lose or we can't care that's the stakes so the stakes set the momentum if uh you know iron man needs to save the world then those stakes are pretty high and we can't take a little um detour and lose sight of that or you deflate the story to stakes and the reader no longer believes that that is urgent because now Iron Man is having a love scene. That doesn't mean you can't have a love scene. It means that the love scene needs to also further the story in some way and the movement toward that goal. And what does that look like? Trying to think of a scene with Pepper. Oh, I know. Um, Can you tell I'm a nerd for Marvel movies? Like there's, I think there's a scene in one of them where Robert Downey Jr, Tony Stark is talking to Pepper about wanting her to be safe. And he's made her, maybe this is Iron Man 3, and he made her the Iron Man suit. So this is furthering the story. It is moving us toward our destination. It is a crucial, germane, intrinsic factor to the entire plot of the story where she winds up joining forces with him, or actually I guess first she's kidnapped, whatever. Let's not get in the Marvel weeds. But the point is, in the course of furthering the story with the creation of this suit, we get to see the love that's between them in his motivation for creating it, which is to protect the woman he loves. Mm. So make sure that every single scene in your story is essential. And what makes a scene essential is that it either um, advances the character along her arc or it furthers the plot with essential information or it raises stakes. And in the strongest stories, every single scene does all three things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my cat just, just wandered in the room. I was like, <laughs> am I gonna get clawed and like as she tries to climb up me? And I love that. And I was uh, having sort of some own personal revelations and, and maybe I'm completely wrong here, but from what you said, it feels like the momentum of a story is, um, uh, intimately tied to the protagonist because the story should always be driven by pushed by the protagonist but the pace of a story can be driven by other characters so if if the villain throws an object or an obstacle in the way of your hero they are dictating the pace. Your hero must slow down. He's still going forward. He still has his momentum, but the pace has been changed and affected by some of the other characters. Like that's kind of how that yeah. was my interpretation. I that's guess, a great you way you to say. put it.
1: That's a great way to put it. The pace, I mean, let's go back to Iron Man because we're in it now. Um, but the pace of the scenes where he's fighting people is very different from the pace of the scene with Pepper. Yeah. Uh, dictated by Pepper in that case, partially. So yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a great way to think of it. And, and that's a key point you bring up that is another um, probably common misstep and also something that authors really should be mindful of is that your protagonist or protagonists should always be the engine of their own destiny.
0: That's one of the biggest ones. When I was doing developmental editing, I often saw manuscripts where the protagonist wasn't driving the action. And um, either that's not your real protagonist, or you need to change something around to make your protagonist. And
1: and And they can drive it with inaction. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a hard charging protagonist because uh, somebody will, oh, I do a lot of women's fiction and someone will always say, well, her arc is to you know reclaim her fire and her joie de vivre. And I'm like, okay, but we still need to see that she is the one making that happen. We need to see that urgent need in her for that even if she can't do it, even if she's suppressing it or
0: we need to see what it costs her because she can't do it that is furthering the story. That's exactly what I was going to say, you know, exactly that. What is the consequence of her not taking Mm. action? And that therefore must then drive forward the plot. Uh, Um, She is essential to every single aspect of it. Her actions or inactions drive every single thing. Exactly. Um, Okay, so.
1: I love uh, that we've just sat in a room agreeing for like an hour. This is fun. You and I both are like yes, yes, exactly what you said. I know,
0: I know. I know there's been like no, no uh, conflict or, or, or uh, take yeah, no world. Yeah, I know exactly. Uh, listen to what we say. It is our, It is. It's the rule. No, I'm joking. Okay, right. Uh, what advice do you have to help uh, writers polish their voice in the editing process?
1: Oh, I love this question a lot. Uh, I don't necessarily. So it it is polishing voice, but the way I think of voice is that you don't have to develop it. You already have it. You just have to free it. And I think a lot of us paralyze up when we start writing. And that's from like high school and college where we've, we feel we must sound a certain way because now we have put it, put it in the importance of the written word and we strip it, or we're trying to um, follow a bunch of, you know, again, air quotes, rules, or dogma or thinking about writing. And so we write it the way we think we should. And and you don't just, this is one thing I love about your idea of this rebel author thing. The rebel in you is your voice. Mm -hmm. And that's what brings your story to life. And that's what makes a story yours and gets you off the slush pile and makes the version that you will tell different from, not only different from the way anybody else will tell it, but memorable and resonant you wanna be able to get in touch with, um, so what is voice? Voice is your, um, so in dance, voice is the style with which a person dances. You know, look at Gene Kelly versus Fred Astaire, two completely different voices. Look at Carlos Santana who does not sing, but any song you've ever heard that's a Carlos Santana song, you know it because his music has a very strong voice. Um, And we have that as authors too. You just have to figure out how to free it. So I've got a few, tips and tricks for that. First of all, voice lies in things like your word choice, um, the way you phrase things, the way you describe things, whether you use cliches or come up with original imagery. You know, do you say someone's skinny as a rail, which is way over familiar and doesn't have a lot of voice to it? Or do you say she looks like a, you know, a popsicle stick with eyeballs or whatever, however you would say it, that makes it you. And that lives in your reader's mind. So all these things factor in, but how can you discover what your voice is? One of my favorite exercises is to you can do this with either someone else's work or with your own work. Let's say you just finished a book that you love. I love that when you were going through stuff, you said you pick out things that you did like and things that you didn't like because they're equally instructive. So pick something you loved or something you hated and identify what gives it the voice that's memorable to you or pick up a favorite author and see if you can pick out what defines what their voice is then try to write something in the style of that author and see if you can mimic it then try to write something with no voice at all and see if you can do that and then take something you've written and see if you can um see if you or take take something take a passage from that author's book and see if you can write it in your voice so you can try all these different things that let you Again, it's play, it's fun, it's make believe, it should be fun. So there's all these fun exercises you can use to free
0: up that thing that makes you a distinctive personality. I love it and um obviously I love it because we've agreed on everything so far today <laughs> but uh yeah I even recommend some exercises very similar to that in uh, the anatomy of Froze. um and uh w- wait where was I going with this I was gonna um say ah yes and uh, like people are very afraid to do that I think yes. they're afraid of like plagiarism or whatever but what what happens when you do these exercises is that you could never recreate or plagiarize I mean you could if you literally wrote down word for word what somebody else said. But when you do these exercises, what, what buries into you is less their voice and more the techniques and the devices and the tools that they have used. And those then come back out um, of you, but using your words and your, your tone and your voice. Um, yeah. yeah. You're not trying to mimic what someone else does. You're
1: just using the way they do it to figure out what your way is. One thing you can, I mean, this is a crazy thing, but this works. Ask your friends what makes you, you. Mm-hmm. You know, like I know that I speak in ridiculous $5 words when it's pretentious just because I like them. I, I use run-on sentences. I, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think what else I do just purely die in dialogue. But the things... That, watch impressions oh my god this is another great one the reason that impressions work is not because somebody is matching the exact vocal tone of that person but because they have captured their voice in the sense of who that person is if you know like the comedian sarah cooper who does impressions she doesn't even do impressions she does actual lip syncing of donald trump speeches and all she does is act it out and you can see that she has completely captured this person In her mannerisms and the way and her expressions and her body language, she's
0: learning this person's voice. You can do that with authors. You really can. So um, I I talk about this all the time, but it's because I'm so like um, um, obsessed about it. But I have three values that I try to put into everything, including my damn sentences. So um, <laughs> I always try to be motivational, which means the um, my choice of sentences they're usually upbeat, they're pacey, they are they um, fun, and they use you know inspirational words. And also there's a bit of whip cracking, um, no Mm. bullshit, you know, suck it up princess. Um, I try to be noble (laughs) and I try to be rebellious. And, you know, and that means swearing. It means making up words. It means breaking the rules. And yeah, and so when you guys know what values you hold most dear to you as, as a person, as a writer, you can let that influence the very sentences, the very word choices that you're making. And I think that goes a long way to making up um, your voice.
1: Yeah. Watch you could even watch recordings of yourself if you don't know what your voice is. Like just in this hour, and here's what I have seen in you. You sound you always sound like you are smiling. <laughs> and and I noticed that on your podcast too. And this is part of your voice, and that's a lovely trait. You you think in complex thoughts. Your thoughts branch out like trees. You're very high energy. All of that is who you are. So if you were to watch yourself on video or listen to yourself in a recording, or um, that's why it can help to sort of rewrite someone else's words in your own voice, because it gives you that objective distance to be able to see your voice. If you're trying to analyze your own writing and see what your voice is, again, you're too close to it. But if you say, oh, these aren't my words, I'm just going to write it in my way. Now, suddenly you almost can't help but put your voice on it.
0: Oh, I love that so much. I love it. I love it. Well, if you,
1: oh, if you master nothing else, voice is the thing that makes your work. Yeah. Um, yeah just magic unique special art
0: yeah absolutely i love the concept of seeing your voice though i think that's um that is awesome all right this is always my favorite question this is the rebel author podcast so tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel
1: <laughs> oh you are asking the most like vanilla white bread rule following person but funny <laughs> enough uh I know that you asked this question and so I was thinking about it and I and in looking back I realized I guess I say that but really I I'm not that person because my entire career is based on um, sort of rebelling against the normal way to do it. You know what I mean like I first of all I rebelled and went to be an actor when I come from this very practical conservative family who all stayed in the town where we grew up. And I moved to New York and then I decided to try, I majored in English literature of all magical things, wanting to be an actor and thinking, I don't know what, cause that wasn't gonna help me in that. And just following that has led me to the thing that I love to do, which I edged into backward. I didn't go get a job as an intern at a publishing house and work my way up. I just kind of thought, huh, where's the back door? Let me go do that. But probably my (laughs) biggest inner rebel is this rules thing. Like I'm really, for a rule following girl, I don't like me any rules in writing, you know, hard and fast ones. I just bristle when I hear people um, conveying to a writer or or human being, frankly, I don't think any of us should live, should live according to shoulds and expectations and strictures that we put on ourselves. I think that deadens us. And I think No, no more so than in your creative efforts. If there's ever a place to kind of say, and because this is a podcast where I joyfully get to curse, I'm gonna fuck the rules. (laughs) Creativity is that place. So fuck the rules, like sit down. And what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you totally free yourself and just see what you can do? The worst thing is it's going to be a piece of crap that is unpublishable. So who cares? No one ever has to see that. That's what the magic of editing is for. You can then take that turd and polish it. Because I promise you, I have yet to see a manuscript that doesn't have something redeeming in it that we can work with. I have yet to see it.
0: Yeah, amen. I completely agree. And uh, yeah, I, I never saw... You know, I saw a lot of manuscripts that needed a lot of work, but I also yeah. saw I, I saw that golden thread that had been yeah. given to them from the muses. You know, you can see as an editor, we get that we have the privilege of being able to see the golden thread and helping, um, you know, the writers to shape and and polish their work to to whatever it gets published out. But know that
1: actually hearing that from two editors right now, that nothing is ever complete shit, (laughs) like nothing in 30 years of doing this. I have never seen a manuscript that is complete shit. Yeah. So know that no matter how bad you try to stink it up. Like I literally, when I sit down to write, literally the mantra that I use is I have permission to suck because that's what takes the reins off of you and lets you tap into that membrane and Mm -hmm all the stuff that you want to tap into as a creative
0: what a wonderful note to end on as well because i I feel like we've gone full circle and um you know we as editors have to give ourselves permission to suck on that first draft you know without that fear of judgment for for our knowledge and, and and editing expertise and the fucking irony is do you know what i have stuck on my computer i have a post-it i have a i have not one but two post-its that say you have permission so for anybody listening you have fucking permission go write yeah. that book all right tell listeners where they can find out more about you your books and um i guess your editing services too Probably the easiest thing is to go to my website,
1: foxprinteditorial.com. And it's got, I I really, I try to, um, I'm unable to, I'm closed to clients at the moment because I'm heavily booked out for the next six months or so. But I try to create as much resource and value as I can for authors. So as I said, there's like a huge resources page. I've got an online course page and I'm developing more But Right now I've got a free one up there that I'm just going to leave up for free. And that's the one about how to analyze your own, or other people's stories like movies and TV shows and books. So uh, that's on there. My books are on there, both my nonfiction and my fiction. Um, presentations, workshops, links to a ton of articles that I've written and great stuff that other people have written. So yeah, that's probably all my socials are on there. So go there. That's The Good Clearinghouse, foxprinteditorial.com.
0: Amazing. I cannot tell you how much I have loved this conversation so thank you so much for your time today I could do this with
1: you all day you're a total delight and I love that you're just a fellow word nerd who jazzes on all this stuff I seriously seriously do oh I
0: I need to lie down like I feel like I have geeked out (laughs) did you just
1: have a literary orgasm
0: yeah maybe maybe I did (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you also to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you also to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black, you are listening to Tiffany Yates-Martin, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, you are going to have two episodes, a bonus episode. In fact, in a couple of days, you will have a bonus episode of uh, me and Jay Thorne talking about personal finance uh, in terms of being an indie author, a career author. So yes, we'll look out for that episode. And then um, next week, I will be talking to Penny Sansevieri and... And I adore Penny. She is such a blast, and she has stacks of ideas for you about how you can do more seasonal marketing. And I, I literally asked her and targeted her uh, and, and begged her to come on the the podcast uh, to talk about this in time, so that you had some time uh, to plan and prepare some seasonal marketing for your books in time for the holidays. So yeah, we've got um, Black Friday coming up and all of the Cyber Monday stuff. Um, Um, I know not everybody will celebrate Christmas who's listening, but obviously uh, for publishing, particularly in America and England, that's a very uh, bit heavy marketing time. So um, yes, I'm sure there are lots of other festivals and seasons coming up. So the lessons will be applicable to lots of uh, times in the year. But yes, I wanted you guys to have a episode specially dedicated to that. So yes, I will speak to you next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.